Welcome to the Q. Conversations in digital media. This podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Digital campaign execution and optimization since 2004. Our next episode is queued up and ready to roll. Thank you for listening. You're in the queue. Welcome to the queue, everyone. This is your host, James McNeil. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Q1 Media partners with agencies and brands all across the nation. So if you never need any help with your digital marketing needs, whether that's display, video, SEM, social media, mobile device ID targeting, whatever it is, please feel free to reach out to Q1 Media at q1media.com. This episode, we actually had a really good conversation with Rachel Kubicki Collins. She works for ACG Works, actually founded ACG Works, and uh, back in 2009, works with a lot of nonprofits. Her background's super interesting from her family, uh, her dad and mom starting uh, one of the first McDonald's back in the day and growing up in kind of the Midwest, then moving to Texas and owning several stores and near the Midland, Texas area. So she's got that McDonald's uh, hierarchy background uh, in the marketing side, but then also kind of when she transitioned into her own um, her own side after she graduated from college, she went and worked for the Livestrong Foundation and helped with the Livestrong Bracelet Foundation wristbands that everybody wore, the yellow wristbands. Really super cool conversation. We got into the digital marketing conversation. We hope you enjoy it. This is The cue. All right, Rachel, thanks for joining us here on The Cue. Um, I know you've you've got so many different hats that you wear, um, one of which being a mother, obviously working with nonprofits. But I want to get a little bit into your background, um, talk about your family, because they got an interesting story and in how you kind of got into the marketing space in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I was blessed that my parents had um, gotten into the McDonald's business back in the... Um, late 70s. And so as some of the first owner operators here in the US, um, it was definitely a family business with my mom there, my dad there. And so as kids, we had an opportunity to work in the stores and work our way through all of the different positions and go to Hamburger University, which is a real thing. Um, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> so there's a school, there's actually a university in Oak Brook. Oh. So once you get trained in the stores, then you're able to actually go to Hamburger U and qualify for some additional classes and you actually get college credits for it and that wow. kind of thing. So they have an amazing training program. So there were just some fundamentals of customer service, um, speed, ROI, inventory management that you learn um, working behind the counter at a McDonald's or cleaning the lobby yeah. that I think was a huge blessing. And also the ability to see my parents be entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. all that went on to that, the good and the bad, um, the late night phone calls when the fire alarm goes off. and yeah. um, But also having the flexibility to have a lot of quality family time too was nice. And that's way before digital marketing, obviously, yeah. <laughs> you know, being in the growing up in the 80s, obviously going through um, going through Hamburger U. Um, and then you, you know, went off to college. So you got some college credit. Yep. Um, where did you go? Purdue. I right? went to Purdue. Yeah. Uh, I went up there. I was a communications major mm -hmm. and I made the mistake. My dad, of course, you know, being mindful of budgets, he asked me, why, why does college take four years? And I didn't have an answer. Um, and so I said, well, I don't know. I said, you could probably do it in three years if you just went year round. And he was like, sounds good. So that, 
So it's all about minimizing the the ROI. What's his return on that investment that he's putting? So um, I actually ended up graduating in three years, but it was a great experience, an amazing school, good people. Um, There's something special about the Midwest. Well, you also kind of went back to your roots. Yeah, exactly. I got to be around some of our extended family. Mm -hmm. And then after that, moved back down to Texas and actually moved out to El Paso and got a job at an ad agency. So that was kind of where I started in the the marketing world, if you will. Was there any sort of digital honus? I mean, what that being back in the no. ad agency days. Well, it, you know, it was interesting. So that first um, year at the ad agency, we really, that was, this is now you're going to know how old I am. Um, no one had websites at that point. None of the businesses, none of the programs that we were working with, the clients. And so for a couple of our clients, we actually wrote the first, you know, wrote and designed the first websites and wow. got those up and got email accounts and helped clients get, you know, all their IT set up. So it was definitely um, an interesting time because people didn't quite know what to do with it yet. It was, And people were still looking for that information. They were seeking you out and it wasn't a cluttered space. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty easy to have something, you know, pretty amazing. Um, but that obviously has changed over the last two decades. Yeah, so. it's insane. Um, I know that the creation of the website back then, I mean, that must have taken forever, right? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what not, that one looked like. It was not a fast process. Yeah. So the first one that I did was actually the um, Sun Bowl Association. So yeah. college football, for any college football fans, that's a Pac-10, Big Ten game. And so they were one of my first clients. And then I ended up actually going to work at the Sun Bowl. Um, so once we finished their website and got that up and running and we passed a tax referendum that would, uh, charge a tax on rental cars and that would fund the game in perpetuity. Um, and so then they had the money to hire a marketing and events person. So they offered me the position. So that was my first foray into nonprofits. Wow. That's great. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you've worked in the nonprofit space for pretty much your entire career. Uh, Talk a little bit about that and, uh, you know, just working with, um, you know, some companies who are not necessarily into like your dad was McDonald's, like what's the straight ROI? It's more of like, Hey, how do we get this message out there? What's the difference? And, you know, I think it's interesting is I think a lot of nonprofits have gotten pretty sophisticated with their, um, measurement techniques, their impact, um, and just overall how they use their data. Um, so they've gotten, they've gotten pretty good, but it's still a challenge. It's hard to prove the social return. And I mean, there's a lot of movements to say, instead of calling them donors, they should be considered investors because while they're not receiving the return, they're investing in this nonprofit and the return is being given out to, um, the folks that they're trying to help, whether that's lung cancer or homeless populations or literacy, whatever it might be. Um, but I think nonprofits in general just struggle to, to share those impact numbers. How do they communicate? And then also really rallying their communities. I think that was an experience that I had um, with Livestrong was this idea of when we were there, you know, we only had maybe 20 to 30,000 names in a database, but we knew through research that there were 28 million cancer survivors in the U.S. at the time. And so it was, you know, without having all the digital tools that we have now to build online communities and engage with people, that was a little bit harder and it made it a lot more expensive for nonprofits that don't have those bigger budgets. Um, and it's too risky for them to take donors money and invest in things like that. So, um, so trying to band all those folks together and 
figure out how you can identify them and, and then give them opportunities to serve or don't, you know, give. Um, so that's changed a lot over the years. Yeah, you mentioned the change in the digital space and allowing you know, com- nonprofits to really get the word out. I mean, you look at all the viral ways that they've been able to do that, especially with the Ice Bucket Challenge. I mean, that's like one of the mm-hmm. biggest ones. But I mean, yeah, how has the digital space changed the game? I think one thing that's happened is it's made everything faster. So nonprofits that maybe would work on a campaign and it was a three to five year budget timeline and a launch and, you know, really get it rolling. Um, and now with all of the digital tools that are available, it seems like they're able, like Ice Bucket Challenge, that, you know, by the time it took off and the time it really hit its stride, you know, you're only talking about a couple of weeks. Whereas, you know, even back when we did the Livestrong wristband, um, when I was at Livestrong, you know, we it took a few months for us to get that thing up and running and to really get the traction. And it wasn't even after, until, you know, the elections were the presidential elections were that fall and um, the Olympics were going on. And so it took a lot more time to build up that momentum. And nonprofits now can use technology um, and a lot of digital marketing tools to kind of speed that process up so yeah. that they get the money and and the awareness sooner. So let's talk about the Livestrong Bracelet Foundation. And that that whole campaign, which is one of the most successful campaigns, you were part of that, you know, mm-hmm. inception um, when it came about. How did you get the word out back then? And, you know, was it truly just, you know, getting it on screen, like branding, having athletes wearing? Like, what was the process? It was a perfect storm. Um, I had been there for four years. Um, I was serving as the VP of fundraising. And my role for that four years, aside from events and and other marketing efforts, uh, was to maintain all of our corporate partners. And so with Nike, that first year that I started in 2000, there were three of us on staff. And I think I convinced Nike to give us 100 free watches. That was their gift that year. Um, And so in four years to be able to get them exposed and integrated into our community so that they understand understood kind of the needs of the cancer survivor population and got them motivated. And we did a lot of brainstorming around what the color yellow meant to this group. And, you know, it really started from a conversation around how do we get that color yellow on everyone in the world um, that needs this message. And so we talked everything about tags on clothes um, to, uh, and then the wristbands was kind of, they were called baller bands previously. <laughs> so it was a basketball thing. So then we kind of used those. We were able to get the molds made. And, um, it was interesting as we, it was going, going for Lance's sixth tour win. And so Nike basically said, we'll buy the first million bands, but you all nonprofit who had, I think we had 30 people or so at the time, um, in Austin and we were doing really well. We were at about a $16 million organization, which was quite a significant increase from previous years. Um, but they said, you all have to figure out a way to distribute the other 5 million wristbands. And so I basically came back to the board and everyone and said, we have to sell 5 million of these wristbands for a dollar. And I think everybody thought I was insane. Um, <laughs> but luckily, you know, with, like you said, tools and um, planning, we had launched our e-commerce platform to sell branded merch. So we were able to tag into that. We had already secured a fulfillment company, Amplifier, here based out of Austin. Uh, they're amazing. And um, so we already had that resource as well. And then at that point, it really was we relied heavily on grassroots marketing. I mean, we had to 
call every single grantee we had ever given money to. We had to call every volunteer that had ever been a part of an event. All of our previous donors, every company. Was the goal just to like get them to them, buy a bunch? Get and them then to sell? buy them, yeah. get them to um, encourage all of their you know, individuals and their supporters to buy them, which is no easy task asking another nonprofit to sell wristbands for your nonprofit um, and just to promote them generally. But it really did. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Those first five million, I think, were gone in a matter of months. And then we were on back order for six weeks when Lance went on Yahoo and we shut the Yahoo store down. Um, <laughs> yeah, how did so, that happen? <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> we were, that was the first time that had ever happened. So we were uh-huh. based on that platform. And so when he went on Oprah, that was it. That oh, by the end of the no. night, everything, Yahoo, all Yahoo store was down, um, not just us. So that was pretty exciting. The um, power and, of Oprah. Yeah, <laughs> and I learned a lot more about... And Lance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He had a little something to do with it. Um, but it was an exciting experience. I do think it's been fun as I've moved past that and worked with other groups like ALS Association, you mentioned the Ice Bucket Challenge. So I had worked with them for five years prior to that and then was brought back on when they were doing strategy work around, okay, now we have this campaign, what do we do next to try to keep some momentum going? Those campaigns look so much different now um, because you look at things like the digital influencers that you can engage and all of the different ways that you can promote that and all of your different community groups online and um, also how all of your organizations like ALS has chapters. So how does the national organization, what kind of tools and resources do they handle and manage at the national level versus passing those to local groups? So it's, um, I think the digital has made it a lot faster and, um, how, you know, easier ROI, but I think it's a little harder for a lot of nonprofits to navigate who maybe don't have a CTO or maybe they, um, you know, their IT department has really been up to this point focused on database management mm-hmm. and not really thinking about the digital marketing side of things. Um, and there's not a lot of board members either that really are digital marketing experts that are serving on these large organizations they might not have a social media account (laughs) right exactly so there's i mean so i think it's not just a staffing issue but just even leadership volunteers um it's something that's changing starting to transform but it's not it's not probably where it should be influencer marketing's very you know it's like you said gotten so huge but like how is the is that has that changed i mean it's is there a a general idea going into it hey we need to find this x influencer type person um what type of mindset or what type of goals are you looking to, to target like say if it's a als or a nonprofit, like is there a specific you know target audience like say hey let's go after mothers so let's find an influence influencer who you know has a lot of moms follow yeah absolutely so we did um i would say a lot of nonprofits because one of the best ways for traditional fundraising is major gifts, um, which is typically gifts of $25,000 or more in a year. Um, and nonprofits, it's been a kind of a tradition to say, okay, we're going to create personas for our major donors. And so they've used that terminology. They understand the concept of who are we trying to target. Um, and so now they're starting to use that same phrasing and that same approach when it comes to some of their larger annual fund or social media campaigns, whether it's giving days that happen once a year or if it's 
um, like National Coaches Day that happens. So they really will start to say, okay, what groups are we trying to tap into? How do we leverage those individuals? Um, and what do they need from us? I think that's one of the big misses is that sometimes we'll have a do a good job of recruiting and then we don't arm those individuals with the assets that they need and the backup to kind of make something of it. So I think that's the the part that's getting a little bit more refined for folks. But the influencers, it's fun because, I mean, it could be anything from kids for a youth organization, um, like you said, or moms. You know, we had um, a group, Marathon Kids, here they do a summer walk and talk program. And so Scary Mommy was one of the influencers that promoted that. And, you know, it made it spread really quickly. First year we did it last year. Um, and we got a great reception to that. And so I think it's it's definitely a, a strong resource for nonprofits. But I don't know if many nonprofits know exactly how to approach those individuals and then what to do with them when they get them. Yeah. So that's kind of where you come in. How do you navigate that space? Yeah, absolutely. So typically we'll look at, um, influencers that have had some success, um, showing some actual, uh, Is there like a threshold of followers? You know, it's funny. Um, it's the trend originally like years ago was to bigger followers, the better. Um, and really, over the last few years, and you guys know this probably better than anybody, but the shift has really been to more micro-influencers. So even people with 1,000 to 5,000 followers actually have a better chance of converting someone to either give a gift or register for a race or do something on behalf of the nonprofit versus some of those accounts that you would think, well, they have a million people if we could just get a few. Um, But that really hasn't been the place to win. It seems like it's some of those smaller groups. I've heard of the bot farms too, or the follower farms. You can you can pay a certain like four grand or six right. Grand yeah, you don't really just, know what you're getting. Yeah, I mean, when it could just be one point. You got that one point one million follower next to your name, and right. Yeah. But it doesn't. What does it actually mean? Exactly. So yeah. yeah so localizing it, maybe going after people who you know within yeah. the area of say if you're doing Austin or Texas or wherever, um, right. maybe going in and doing a little bit more research. I guess, how do you, f- I mean, how did you find people? I mean, did you just look them up or just reach out to them? Like, how Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to research that. Back in the day, um, even like with the Livestrong campaign, I mean, we had a running list as a cancer organization of everyone um, that at that point was a celebrity. I wouldn't even say an influencer, you know, more just a celebrity. Um, And so we knew kind of who had been affected and how, whether it was a family member or self. And then when I work with various other nonprofits, whether it's, um, you know, an environmental group or it's um, another, you know, like a heart disease or those kinds of things, literacy we'll kind of take a look at influencers in that space um, and just do our research. We, you know, there's a lot of different data ways to pull that data to kind of, if you can provide a persona, if you know the space that you're trying to be in, you can create that filter criteria and um, start generating a list of folks that you can then start reaching out to. Is it just like through Facebook or Facebook? Yeah. Through Facebook and Instagram. So there's some, there's some research tools that you can use to kind of um, pull those people out, pull those people out, and identify them. And then it is important, though, that you still do your due diligence to go onto those accounts and not just look at the first few pages, but actually get pretty far in there and see if they've had other partner relationships, either for profit or nonprofit, um, and see what causes they've maybe talked about in the past, and just make sure that it's really a, a values fit, so that you're not adding somebody to the list that 
is going to actually hurt the cause more than help. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always a tricky play. I think that's one nice thing with the idea of using micro-influencers and using them in shorter bursts and not some long five-year, ten-year spokesperson role because, you know, things change in people's lives. And so an influencer that makes sense for your organization this year might not next year. Or maybe they've had a change in how they carry themselves or do their business, and it's not a good match Especially culturally. today's society. Yeah, you just happen, never, you know. never know. And you need to distance. You need to be able to distance yourself. Um, and you also need to be able to talk about all the good works that they had done and sure. helped that, you know, the help that they had offered as well. But I think it's, it's a lot smarter for charities to look at the potential to tie themselves to a couple, you know, multiple people instead of just one face that, you know, that could end up hurting them down the road. Yeah. Putting your eggs all, eggs all in one basket. I mean, it's, it's definitely changed. Like you said, as far as term as like the terms with people, long-term versus short-term, mm-hmm. I guess as far as ad buys go, I mean, you've seen the scale from going from traditional ad buys, um, maybe even doing uh, spend on radio, TV, billboards, whatever. Um, what's what's happened lately? You know, has there been a shift towards digital ad buys yeah. in the past 10 to 12 years? Yeah, for sure. The In the sponsorship side of the business, um, back in the day, you would, before you launched an event or did any kind of a campaign, you would immediately go to the radio station and the television station in town, and you would convince them to give you some in-kind um, space uh, on air, that kind of thing that you could then trade and include in your sponsorship packages. Uh, and now, with digital, it's become definitely a little bit more complicated, I think. with You, know, you still need some of that traditional media um, for a lot of your programs. But on the digital side of things, it's nice because it's given you the ability. You're just as capable of creating your own sense of community, having millions of people um, you know, following you online, um, you know, subscribing to your materials, your newsletters. So you can, in a way, become a digital marketing property as a nonprofit yeah, organization. Yeah, reach out, the in-kind stuff you don't, yeah. you're kind of doing that on your own. Exactly. You now have, you know, and that's, I think that's one thing that's been pretty fascinating about digital is it kind of evens the playing field. It's no longer just in the hands of, say, a radio TV group, but now every organization can kind of create their own channel to their community. And that's what your sponsors are buying into. That's what people care about. So if you're able to say, we're engaging our community in this way, and it's a very specific um, target demographic, then you could in some ways be more valuable than say a traditional media buy. Um, In some ways more, like you said, I think there's a lot of times where there's no radio or TV buy that would have ever given you that type of exposure. (laughs) No, not at all. And definitely not to, you know, if you're looking for a very niche audience. um, So there's some things that you can do now with your digital property as a nonprofit that, um, really opens things up as far as sponsorship valuation and how partners work with you. And I do think, too, that there is an opportunity for nonprofits to be a little bit more experimental with some of the new digital tools like you and I have been talking about with device targeting and some of the other things because even some of the sponsor companies haven't quite gotten there yet. And for a nonprofit to be able to come to the table and say, when you partner with us, you're not just getting 
the same old, same old. Mentions or Number of mentions and PSAs and we're going to send... Impressions. You're in our newsletter. Get excited. Um, (laughs) So now you can actually be at the forefront in those marketing conversations and say, you know, based on what we know about your business, here's another tool that we as the nonprofit partner can bring to the table and build it into that package. Um, And so that seems that makes nonprofits that are trying to push the envelope, be more innovative, grow faster. It puts them in the best position possible to secure higher dollars, more support, um, and especially from the corporate community. Well, if you're going to a big brand name with this type of data and they're kind of sitting there like, wow, where'd you get that? I'm not getting that. Where's my marketing team? Let me pull my marketing guy into this conversation. Uh, Yeah, no, you mentioned targeting, you know, mobile devices, being able to target really a niche audience. I guess there's a lot of data involved in that. How do you educate a nonprofit who's maybe, you know, not used to that type of data, that type of level of, you know, uh, I mean, obviously they have their own with, like you said, they have their own donor bases and and they can tell a lot of research, but you know, what's been difficult about the education process with these nonprofits? Yeah. I I think um, one thing is you, you don't know what you don't know. And, Nonprofits are stretched thin. I mean, they are trying to operate um, minimally so that the majority of the funds can go to the programs that they're supporting, the people um, that they care about or animals, whatever their cause might be. And so you may have, like I said, if you have a CTO, um, they're worrying about five, you know, the website refresh that has to get done and should have been done five years ago and their database and social media accounts and who gets to do what. And so there's just a lot that they're, um, you know, wealth screening for major donor reports. So just adding another technology in the mix can be scary for people. Um, And I think the important piece is, you always have to right, have that business case for why would you even do this mm-hmm. just to do it for the fun of it. You know, that's, that's not the best plan, but I look at things like the device targeting in the nonprofit space. If you know for a fact that there's an audience out there that you're trying to reach. So say, um, you are, um, make a wish and you have a walk series that's across the country and you're trying to do um, participant acquisition. And right now you are kind of relegated to your standard kind of Facebook ads, buying ads, boosting things, that kind of just more general um, and things that people have been doing for a few years now. Um, But you know the perfect person for your walk, the one that's going to raise the most money, be the most engaged, the best volunteer, Mm -hmm. active, bring a whole family and a team. You kind of have some background on that individual that their child has been in a hospital for X number of days for the year. Um, Have they been to other support group meetings or other offerings from that organization? And so if you can start to look back and say, if only we could reach and you know exactly that population, that's where I think the device targeting comes in handy. You've got hundreds, thousands of, you know, these peer-to-peer programs, which are the walks, the rides, climbs, I mean, you name it, the kayaks, whatever. Um, and they're looking for ways to reach the people that they serve. But right now they're having to take a really broad brush in doing that. And um, what tools like, you know, the device targeting and what Q1 does really allows them to hone in on those folks sooner rather than later and right. make it really relevant to them. I mm-hmm. mean, those parents, they do not need to be bombarded with a lot of ads that aren't helpful for them. 
Um, so it's also being really respectful of the people that you're trying to engage and serve. Yeah. So it's, it's location-based targeting. It's a little creepy, but at the same time, like you said, <laughs> it is very much a, a tool, um, not only for the user's experience, because they're going to get you know the ads that are more relevant to them. It makes right. sense. Um, but then, like you said, for the for the nonprofit, for them just to be a little bit more precise with their ad budget, because like you said, they're already stretched thin. They're already looking for donors, and they're already, you know, trying to get that. Um, so, I mean, ACG Works is is your uh, agency, and you solely just work with nonprofits. You know, nonprofits. I guess talk a little bit about ACG, kind of how you came up about that, and okay. then why the need of, like, really trying to, to work with, you know, multiple agencies and just helping them out. Yeah, so I had originally joined the Lance Armstrong Foundation in 2000 because my mom was a breast cancer survivor at the time. And so I worked there for six years, and then kind of felt like I had developed some really strong formulas and theories around not just fundraising, but just nonprofit strategy, um, board integration, um, staff development. So I wanted to kind of test those theories. Can I still make that work without a Nike? Could I still make that work without a Lance? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had a little bit of time to kind of test that with groups like the Autism Society and others. And um, so in 2009, I opened up ACG Works based here in Austin, and we're a virtual company. So we've got team members all over the U.S. and really more on skill set basis. And so we do. We work with nonprofits of all sizes. We have startup groups that have, you know, $250,000 annual operating budget all the way up to the groups that have the two to $400 million budgets. And Um, surprisingly, just like we've been talking about today, a lot of the issues are kind of similar. The groups, the smaller ones to the bigger ones, maybe it's more a matter of scale, but the issues are still there. They're trying to reach their people that both, not just from a fundraising standpoint, but also from a, they want to help them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Hearing Loss Association of America was one of my clients. And we knew for a fact that folks that had a hearing loss could come to our events, whether they were support team meetings um, or our walk fundraising events, and that they said their life would be changed. The fact that they could be around all of these people that were like them and just felt that sense of community and belonging. So that makes it even more important. It's not just about reaching these folks for the money. It's more about like, you might be reaching someone that needs to hear from you, that you have a service that you could be providing. I mean, that's what we're all called to do in that space. So um, ACG Works, we've had the honor of working with some pretty amazing groups, Sierra Club. We worked on their peer-to-peer fundraising program, Team Sierra. Uh, Worked with Make-A-Wish on their World Wish Day campaign and changed that from a one-day to a month-long program and really changed their results. Which, uh, how, how did you do that? So that was originally, um, it was a one-day campaign. This actually used digital quite a bit a few years ago. And it was to get people to either donate or don- donate dollars or miles. And then those miles year-round would be used to get kids to their wish, um, their wishes. Yeah, yeah to gotcha. their destinations. Um, and so what we did was we actually created a cross-functional team at Make-A-Wish Um, And so we pulled people in from a bunch of different departments, corporate partnerships, um, their digital marketing team, um, their brand uh, VP, and basically said, okay, instead of this being a one-day program, we're actually going to extend it for a month. We're going to do some lead-ins. We're going to change the sponsorship program so that 
they're using more of their digital assets for us as well. So how do we integrate with that? Um, and then give sponsors turns during the month to really be highlighted. Um, and so we saw just in the first year, I think our results were like a 784% increase in support dollars and miles. Um, and that was just from really transforming. And I think really one creating more of an overall team. And I think that's something else that happens with in the digital space is you can't just say I'm the fundraising department or the programs department, and you now really have to be more inclusive because you're crossing over each other all the time. But so that, Opens that up was the for program. More sponsors too. To yeah, the absolutely. Space that they're able to go in and the yeah. type of you know, ads when you're whatever you're doing, whether you're boosting campaigns on Facebook, running display ads, video ads. Right. I mean, you can include all of those sponsors. Yeah, all absolutely. Of that collateral. I think that's one of the other things that is tricky for some nonprofits is, you know, there are a lot of restrictions and regulations on how a nonprofit will promote a for-profit organization. So as a sponsor, so if you say this, you know, they're sponsoring this program or this campaign, you can't just say, and we'll give you the you know front of our website and you can put whatever banners on there you want. You have to be really mindful of, um, of those laws and regulations. And so I think, you know, just having a mindful partner, somebody that's been through that a few times, um, and doing your research on that, people are happy to share that information. And a lot of great vendors have been down that path, so they can answer those questions for you. Um, so I think that that's something else that not I think sometimes scares nonprofits away, but it's that that's an easily solvable issue. Yeah, somebody that knows the ropes. Somebody right. there's just take take your time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Plan this out. No rush. Um, we'll right. hold your hand while you're there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So ACG, um, we'll wrap up here in a little bit, but yeah, I guess ACG works. I mean, obviously they can reach out to you if yeah. any nonprofit who's absolutely know, scalable campaigns and, mm -hmm. you know, you can lead them and guide them down yep. the path to success. We do everything from board meetings and facilitation, staff training, um, sponsorship, outreach and research, prospect list building, um, and then peer to peer programs That's as great. well. So it's, it's been a pretty amazing way to make a living the last it's, decade yeah, or so. Yeah, you're doing it for a good cause. Yeah, you know? exactly. It's not, you're still in the marketing space. Like, you still got your roots <laughs> coming yeah, up from McDonald's exactly. and your ad agency days. But I think being in that space has got to be rewarding. It is. Uh, it's fun because you get to work with people. And you're not just selling widgets. I mean, these are all people that are truly, they have dedicated their lives to these causes, whether it's, you know, like I said, animals or the environment, whatever it might be. And so they are trying to do good works. And, you know, if I can help them through ACG works, and then if I can help them find better technology solutions and partners like Q1 and all of the other um, groups that I work with, I feel like that's a win because you're just making it easier for them to do what they feel like they've been called to do. Oh, that's amazing. It can't get any better than that. I mean, I might just have to move into the nonprofit space. Yes. <laughs> get done with the podcast. Well, Rachel, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks awesome. for having me.